Okay, can we turn please to Romans chapter 2? Romans chapter 2. I hope you all got the text about last night. It was a power power outage, power failure thing. So, I mean, you never think. Spring comes, and then, am I a snowflake? Tony? The meteorologist calls me a snowflake whenever I... <laughs> okay, Romans chapter 2, verse... 24. Um, we just have Sunday morning's message is going to be out there tonight because I edited it and put some additional um, scripture references, beefed it up quite a bit. I didn't really do what I wanted to do Sunday. There's something about Easter. But this message will be out there, retrospection, resurrection, and re- rectification. I think if you read it carefully, you'll find some important central ideas that we're really getting to in Romans, and it really sets the tone for and the tenor for the rest of the epistle. This also will be on the website tomorrow. And that's our 40th message in Romans, so this is our 41st. And in light of the fact that we didn't celebrate April Fool's Day on Easter, I've entitled tonight's message, The Teacher and the Schmuck. <laughs> so, you'll see why. <laughs> you'll see why in a minute. In, in a few minutes. Let's take a few moments of silent, <laughs> silent prayer. Father, we regard it as an extraordinary blessing every time we gather together because you, in your faithfulness, have called us into fellowship with your Son. And what an honor it is to belong to him. As Isaiah twenty-six thirteen says, once we served other lords, but now our Lord is our Lord Jesus Christ the King of Grace. And we pray as the ancient prayer of Didache prayed, let the old age pass away and let grace come. Let that be the case with us tonight as we study your word and as the Holy Spirit, our divine teacher, enlightens our eyes. May we realize tonight when we leave here that once we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. So is our participation with you in your son. We thank you in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 2. We left off right here. 2.24. Paul is still in a dialectic of contradictories with someone who is clearly And I think Douglas Campbell was correct on this, a teacher of another gospel, a teacher of another nomistic gospel, one who had some measure of fame, one who had a tremendous amount of influence at the time. And a dialectic of contradictories means that there's no middle ground. There's no conciliatory point that can be made. When you have a dialectic of contraries, you can do what? Aquinas did, and you can have the two go against each other, but come to a middle ground, a middle term of compromise or agreement. There is no compromise or agreement. This is a dialectic of contradictories. There is no amelioration of one side to the other. It's either the extreme of an apocalyptic gospel of the grace of God, or it's the other extreme, a justification by human action and human works. Romans 2.24, Paul is still indicting this teacher, and this is a devastating indictment because it comes directly from the scriptures. He quotes here Isaiah 52.5, and now he's taken off the gloves. 
For as it is written, he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And the you here is in a second person plural. So he's directing this to a particular person. This is a shocking indictment of the teacher whose gospel, so-called, fuels the pervasive belittling hostility. That's the definition of resentiment. It, this gospel fuels the pervasive belittling hostility called resentiment. One of the prime root problems in this age, this evil age. In fact, it's almost a de definition of this evil age. This resentiment, which is a, a French word that goes a little past resentment, it has the capacity to leaven the whole lump of dough, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. This kind of boasting, which is rooted in this resentiment, a pervasive, belittling hostility, has the negative power of leavening a whole church or making a whole church ineffective. In fact, it can destroy totally the identity, the fellowship, and the effectiveness of any church or assembly or any organization, for that matter, whether the organization is a marriage or a nation or another corporation. The quotation of Isaiah 52.5 here and its direct application to a false teacher, an opponent of Paul, is a devastating blow to the high fortress of elitism that is fostered by a nomistic gospel. That's the word again, nomistic is a little better than legalistic as a term because it comes from the Greek word nomos, which is from the Hebrew Torah or related to the word Torah. Nomos, nomistic, means a gospel that proclaims the human action of observance of Torah for justification or for rectification. Now, Paul's Gospel is accused. It was accused then and it's accused now of saying, let us go out and do evil that good may come. Paul's gospel, in other words, was accused of not having sanctifying power attached to it. And it's the opposite is the case. And Paul proves that from Romans 6, 1 through 8, 13, all the way through. There is a direction we're headed to. Now, I noticed when I was thinking of this, 2 Peter 2.1 addresses a similar phenomenon. 2 Peter 2.1, you can read on your own time. The author of 2 Peter warns that just as false prophets were among the people of Israel of old and misled many, so there will be false teachers among you, he says, among believers in Christ. There will be false teachers among you. And these teachers, says Second Peter 2.1, will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. That is, heresies that produce divisions and schismatic sects or factions. This word heresies deserves a study in itself, although I'm not going to do that entirely tonight. It's H-A, this is the hard breathing, H-A-I-R-E-S-E-I-S. -E -E heresies. And then we get, of course, the word heresies from this. The word doesn't just mean false teaching. The actual word means divisions itself. And so it's a kind of teaching that produces divisions. A kind of destructive gospel produces divisions. That's the problem in Rome. There are Roman groups, and they have their group biases. And these group biases 
create self-segregation among groups, and then while they go to their separate corners, they look at each other with either judgmentalism on the one hand or with despising on the other hand, a belittling. And it's a mutual hostility. And so Paul is getting at that through taking down the high fortress of a false gospel that sidelines Jesus Christ rather than centralizes him. The true gospel is center is Jesus Christ. In fact, it's all throughout it's Jesus Christ. The false gospel sidelines him. In a sample of a sermon from this teacher, Romans one eighteen to 32, and I think that that's exactly what we have here, there's no mention of the Messiah, no mention of Jesus Christ, just the immoral idolatry of the Gentiles and God's supposed wrath upon them. But Paul's turning that into a mirror indictment, and he continues to do that here in Romans 2.24. Heresies then, by very definition, as it's used in 2 Peter 2.1 and also in 1 Corinthians 11.19 and Galatians 5.20, those who do such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. Heresies. I'll show you what that means in a minute. I'm going to give you a threefold definition of what Paul means when he says that so-and-so or such-and-such a person does not inherit the kingdom of God. There are three angles on defining that. People who tout a hell doctrine use that in their as one of their building blocks. Well, we're just ready to kick another building block out from underneath their case. And so the whole point of Paul is combating this teacher to dismantle the divisions that his false teaching and pseudo-gospel has fostered and continues to nurture. In 2 Peter 2.2, in a striking parallel to Romans 2.24, in fact, the writer says that many will follow their unrestrained ways and licentiousness, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. Now here we hit a nerve in Romans, one that we don't really see develop until Romans 7, 7 through 25, where we have another speech in character. The character there is someone who's trying to come to rectitude in his life or her life, come to righteousness or an attitude of rectitude through the works of the law and ends up producing the opposite of what the law commands them. The reason for that is that the power, the elemental force called sin has hijacked the law so that those who try to follow it do the bidding not of the law but of sin. That's what we're going to get to when we get to Romans 7. And so once again, the whole point of Paul's combating of this teacher, as Campbell, I think, rightly calls his opponent, is to dismantle the divisions that his false teaching and pseudo-gospel has fostered and continues to nurture in these group biases. So in 2 Peter 2.2, again, the striking parallel. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The true gospel blasphemed because the false gospel produces this kind of unrestrained licentiousness. Now, here's the nerve. Here's the nerve that struck here. One may say that this teacher's ways were not in any way unrestrained or licentious or lascivious or grossly immoral. In fact, it could be said, if you were going to argue the point, that he urged a rectitude, a righteousness of behavior, that was commanded in Torah. But that's exactly the point. Romans 7 illustrates it imaginatively by another speech in character. The law which this man preached 
is hijacked, has been hijacked by sin. So that the one who attempts to do right by it ends up doing the very opposite. Paul is exactly hitting the point here. Paul is actually slanderously accused and has been at the time of preaching a gospel which leads to licentiousness and unrestrained sinning. That's the accusation made of him. Romans 3.8. But the exact opposite is true about Paul's gospel. As he demonstrates in Romans 6.1 all the way through Romans 8.13 and even then throughout Romans 12.1 through 13.14. The teacher whom Paul engages in a dialectic of contradictories which allows no compromise all the way from Romans 1.18 through 3.20 and beyond. This teacher certainly does not advocate licentiousness. But that's where his nomistic gospel inevitably leads. So, again, the, the accusation to Paul that his gospel leads to a license to sin and to licentiousness is a mirror indictment on the nomistic gospel because sin hijacked the law, but sin can never hijack grace, which is a greater power than sin. Paul's gospel, on the extreme other hand, is the saving power of God. That saving power of God is not only liberating, but transforming. And the transformation includes a transformation of what we might call ethical or moral behavior or responsible human behavior. But a higher integration of human living and a higher integration of human behavior that is not without the Spirit of God. Never without the Spirit of God. Not on our own steam, but by the Spirit of God. Paul's gospel, then, is the saving power of God, which not only liberates, but transforms. By it, God rectifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5. God rectifies, and that's a better word than justifies, he rectifies the ungodly. whether Jew or Gentile. And he does it on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.30 teaches that. But on the other hand, God does not justify ungodliness. And there's the fine division. God rectifies the ungodly, but he does not justify the ungodliness of the ungodly person. And that's an important distinction. Whether performed by Jews or Gentiles, God does not justify ungodliness, but he does rectify the ungodly, whether Jews or Gentiles, but he doesn't justify ungodliness, whether Jewish or pagan. Paul's gospel, which he explicitly calls my gospel in Romans 2.16 and Romans 16.25 to 26, as well as 2 Timothy 1.8, is God's gospel all about God's son. God's gospel all about God's son is Paul's gospel. It's all about God's son. Romans 1.1-4. 1, 1 that gospel has a sanctifying power. We could say a built-in sanctifying power. Whereas salvation, we speak of salvation and separate it from sanctification. 
Salvation is sanctification. It has the power to sanctify as well as the power to rectify. In fact, as Barth once said it, God is in the process of normalizing human behavior. We don't know what normal human behavior is until we look at Jesus Christ. Normal human behavior. The Christian spiritual life is God's normalization of truly human behavior. Because true human behavior is enacted by God in the human. It is God in you both willing and doing toward that which is to his pleasure. I'm saying these things kind of slowly because it's building into, it's giving us a direction. So the dialectic will take this turn, in fact, in a debate about the ethical fruits of each gospel later in Romans. The ethical fruits of each gospel will be debated in Romans. How often in history and in our own time is the name of Jesus Christ blasphemed among unbelievers? Because believers, in their hypocrisy and extreme licentiousness, while they name the name of Christ as Savior, and yet who engage in the worst forms of sensuality, where it's almost institutionalized in certain churches, as well as greed. These are the fruits of legalistic teaching or of any teaching that appeals to the old man to be good. Paul's gospel and the gospel of God about his son does not appeal to the old self to be good, to be better, or to be reformed. It commands that the old self be put off altogether just as the old age is passing away and the new man be put on. And the new man that we put on in Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24 is Jesus Christ in Romans 13.14. And so legalistic or nomistic teaching or any teaching that appeals to the old self to be good or to perform honorably. The indiscriminate sexual promiscuity that this teacher condemns in Gentiles, in Romans one twenty four and following, was actually practiced by Israel after the flesh, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 10.8 and 10.18, saying that their idolatry was a, com- a communion with demons in 1 Corinthians 10.20-21. So this Jewish Christian teacher is encouraging the same and in fact producing the same behavior in his followers. Not by openly advocating immorality, but by openly preaching rectification by the works of the law or rectitude attained by human action. It inevitably produces the opposite. And so this teacher, by openly preaching rectification by the works of the law and rectitude by obedience to Torah in the energy of the flesh, He is actually fostering behaviors that do not belong in the realm of Christ. And listen carefully to this. For the practitioners of these behaviors do not and will not ever inherit the kingdom of God. That's Galatians 5.19 to 21, and that's Ephesians 5.5, which includes obscene speech, suggestive speech. 
Now, am I getting legalistic? No. But by emphatically assuring his hearers that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul is not saying that some people will ultimately be excluded from God's kingdom. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying that some people will be excluded from God's kingdom. He's saying that one man will be excluded, and that's the old man who does these things. So we put off the old man with his practices. Now listen carefully to this. Here's interpretation of Galatians 5. And those of your friends, and keep them as your friends. Don't alienate them and don't pound them into the ground. Those friends of yours that want to tout the doctrine of hell, let them do it. Let them talk it. They use this as one of their building blocks. They'll go right there. People that do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And don't argue with them. You say, that's right. But Paul's not saying that some people will ultimately be excluded from God's kingdom, which is against his gospel of of his universal gospel, gospel of universal rectification. Doesn't he say in Romans 5.18 that through the act of Jesus Christ's faithfulness or his obedience or his death or his blood, they all mean the same thing, that justifying life comes to all. And it's not a matter of our choice whether we receive it. It's God's choice. We do receive it. So Paul's not saying some people won't go to heaven, even though I've already said that everybody receives justification unto life. What I'm telling you now is some people don't. He's not saying that at all. Just like Luke's gospel, which is entirely universalistic, and I have at least 30 examples of it in Luke, doesn't put in the middle, but there's this one rich man. He goes to hell forever. All flesh will see the salvation of God, experience the salvation of God, except this one rich guy in this parable rooted in an Egyptian myth that Jesus Christ demythologizes. Paul doesn't say that. So he does not say that some people will ultimately be excluded from God's kingdom against his gospel of universal rectification and life found in Romans 5, 18 and 19, Romans eleven thirty two, Romans 16, 25 and 26, and 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for example. So he's simply emphatically asserting three things, A, B, C. Here's an A, B, C interpretation of what Paul means when he says such who practice these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. A, this means, A, that the old creation, and Paul is emphatically asserting this, A, the old creation will be utterly replaced by the new. So nothing of the old survives in the new creation. Again, Pastor Brown's Observation the other night, you can't put new wine into old wine skins. B, it also means that the old man, Palaios Anthropos, as he's called by Paul elsewhere, Colossians 3, 9, and Ephesians 4, 22, Palaios, paleo man, Palaios Anthropos, The old man, that is the old humanity, with its practices, will never be in the kingdom of God. Now, whenever we retract and recede back into the Adamic ontology, and we're grumpy and arrogant and complaining and cursing, and judging, and despising, and looking at other people of no account. The person that's doing that ain't going to heaven. 
It's not going to make the cut. And by that, I'm using the term going to heaven to indicate that person will not be in the new creation when the manifestation of Jesus Christ's universal grace is shown to all and all experience salvation. And that kind of behavior will never be done in the new creation, ever. Can you imagine? You can't even imagine it. And C, it means those who continue to practice these things are barred from the experience of God's kingdom while they live in the flesh. That is, in their time in the flesh. They're barred from the experience of the kingdom. And how can we, in other words, be doing those things which are in accord with the old creation, even though we have received life from Jesus Christ, how can we experience the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit? So I'm going to do the ABC again. What that means in Galatians 5.21, those who do these things do not inherit the kingdom of God. He's simply emphatically asserting that, A, the old creation will be utterly replaced by the new, and there'll be no old in the new. B, the old man, that is, the old humanity with its practices will never be in the kingdom of God. And C, those who continue to practice these things are barred from the experience of God's kingdom in their time in the flesh. Which means in this, we call it this life. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, which is brought about by the action of God in Christ. Has been brought about when Jesus said it is finished. And is continually, ongoingly brought about in the spirit. And only in the spirit. And never without the spirit. It's called serving in the newness of the spirit. Ennumati. Ennumati. It's the newness of life to which we've been raised in Romans 6.4. And the kingdom of God is joy and peace, which are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Again, Romans 14, 17, which are produced in those who walk in the spirit. That is, conduct their lives in the power of the spirit and not in the flesh. That is, in the steam of our own energy of the flesh. In Romans 8, 4, compared with Galatians 5, 22 to 23. So neither my old man, Palaios Anthropos, the person I am or was in the Adamic ontology, nor yours, will ever inherit the kingdom of God. Thank God for that. Imagine you in your worst day, and I've had a few worst days in my life. You're, you just, you're just so angry with life and hate everything and everybody and this world, and even God, that person isn't going to be there when the new creation comes to its full birth, its full fullness. And if you're in the height of that misery, you're saying, thank God that that me isn't going to be there. That's what he's saying. And so Paul's gospel is actually bringing people into the experience of the kingdom of God who were outside of it by their judgmentalism on one hand and their despising of others on the other hand, this pervasive belittling hostility, which is presently eating away at an entity called the United States of America. Rasantamon. The devouring monster of our time. You say, is the devil real then? Yes, very much so. And he's the sponsor of it. In fact, the devil is one of those powers of this age to which we've died in Christ. Colossians 2.20, Stoichia, the powers of this age. The elements are the 
powers that are too great for us. Jeremiah 31, 11. You have delivered us from powers too great for us. That's the point of the gospel. So neither my old man nor yours will ever inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm not talking about our earthly fathers. I had a good relationship with mine. You might not have a good relationship with yours. And you might say, good, my old man's not going to be there. I'm talking about the person you are in the old age and in the Adamic ontology. That's your old man. Your father is your father, your earthly father. So he'll be there, but that part of him that you hate won't be. Unless that part of him that you hate was the new man. (laughs) My father was the new man toward me. So he made me responsible. Yeah. Terribly abusive. And people do have abusive parents. Don't think I'm taking that lightly. That is a trend of our time. It's a trending situation right now. It's horrible. We should have sympathy for those who are under that kind of thing. And the gospel is their salvation too. The spiritual life. The higher integration of human living which involves forgiveness of our tormentors. Prayer for our abusers. Love for our enemies. The old man can't do that. So might as well put him off along with his deeds now. Might as well put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with its desires. Romans thirteen fourteen. Do it now. Might as well. That was all two twenty four. Let's look at two twenty five now. For now Paul hits a hot button issue. And he uses quotes again. For circumcision is indeed beneficial, he says. That's right out of the mouth of the teacher. Circumcision is indeed beneficial. And then Paul says, yeah, if you, second person singular, if you observe the law, it's great. If you observe the law, you know what he means by that, of course. That is, the circumcision is great if it's part of a regimen in which the whole Torah, the Torah in toto, is observed. Now, we're going to see there's two times Paul uses the word anakephaleao, the heading up or the summing up of all things. One is in God's intent to sum up, sum, up, sum up everything in Jesus Christ. Another is in the summary of the law, which is this, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. Circumcision is good if you do all that the law requires and the law and the prophets hang on this one thing that you love your neighbor as yourself, but you can't. So God does it in you and the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in your heart. So Paul is still in Wing Chun here. They are in constant contact and exchanging blows constantly, but he's also using jujitsu, which takes the energy of his opponent and lets him go with it, uses it against him by saying circumcision is indeed beneficial. Paul says, if you teacher observe the law, that is if you are fulfilling all of it, but if you're a transgressor of the law, that means in any point, James makes that point in James two ten. If you're a transgressor of the law in any point, especially the point that says you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jewish Christian, love your neighbor, your Gentile pagan neighbor as yourself. Tenement Christian, love the suburban housewife Christian. Suburban house church Christian, love The Christian who's meeting in the slums, who's a slave. Love your neighbor as yourself. Circumcision is great. It's a great benefit if you do the whole law. 
But if you're a transgressor of the law in any point, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You, Jewish teacher, become a schmuck. Now, if you want to look up the word schmuck and you'll find out some interesting things about it. It's a, it's, it, there's a variation of it that's used in our time way too much. So-and-so is a... And then they describe a part of the male anatomy in a vulgar type of way. That's what the schmuck means. And it's kind of like a term for a man who still has the foreskin. And that's what acrobustia means. The Jews are actually saying, the foreskin. Remember when David came and he saw Goliath and he said, what's this uncircumcised Gentile yammering on about? I think I'll take his head off. I think I'll take him. I think I'll kill him. And he did kill him. But that, that has then grown into a Jewish ressentiment for Gentile believers for whom God does not require circumcision. Now, I'm going to be very careful that I'm not vulgar, but I'm just using a vulgarism or maybe a colloquialism to illustrate a point. So Paul says, look, if you're a transgressor of the law, even though you're physically circumcised, ritually circumcised in accordance with Moses' law, but you fail to, say, love one another, then doesn't your uncircumcision become or your circumcision become an uncircumcision in other words isn't it like you got your foreskin back and you're a pagan now with this and i'm not going to have you turn there but think about it and read it on your own time let's go to acts or think about acts 15 this is where my mind went when i was studying this in acts 15 1 and this is very important to understand where this teacher is situated Acts 15.1 says, certain men came down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up there. You see that the whole point is there's an elitism about, and they came down, they condescended from Jerusalem, teaching the brothers, Christians, that unless they submitted to circumcision in the manner prescribed by Moses, they could not be saved. That's pretty severe. I mean, that's... Maybe where this teacher is coming from. In Acts 21, 19, even more revealing, Paul goes to the church in Jerusalem. He meets with James and he gives a report one by one. He said, this is what God did in this Gentile place. This is what God did in this Gentile place. This is what Jesus Christ did in these among these Gentiles, saving them. Saving them by the power of the spirit, by the power of my gospel. He kept reporting one after another. Acts 21, read it on your own. 19, during his visit with James and the rulers of the Jerusalem church, they having greeted them, Paul began to relate many instances of God's doing, God's acts. The acts of the apostles are really the acts of God among the Gentiles and the Jews. He relates one by one. That means one story over after another, one account after another of God's doing among the Gentiles through his ministry. This goes along with Romans 15. May it never be that I should ever boast in anything that I've done, but what Christ has done through me among the Gentiles. And that's what he was talking about. But then in Acts 21, 20 to 21, however... Upon hearing Paul's report, they glorified God. That's good. But then said to him, notice how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. All of them are zealous for the law. They've believed. They're Christians. They're Jewish Christians whose zeal is for Torah. 21, moreover, they have been informed about you, Paul. Well, who do you think informed them about Paul? Teachers, plural in Galatians. Teachers, plural in Galatians. 
They informed about you that you teach all the Jews that are among the Gentiles that they should not circumcise their children or to observe our customs. So it's evident that Paul's opponent in this dialectic of contradictories is among those who believed, but are who not, not are only zealous for the law, just like a lot of Protestant theologians believe, and they're zealous for the law as far as the Christian life. They think the Christian life has to be lived in accordance with Torah and the energy of the flesh, even though salvation is by grace and through faith, they say. Interesting. The same divine action that was required to accomplish the redemption of the world in Jesus Christ is required for the spiritual life afterwards, the ongoing action of the Spirit of Christ in our lives. So then, it's evident then that Paul's opponent in this dialectic is among those who have believed, but are not only zealous for the law, but who insist that unless a man is circumcised according to the law, he cannot be saved. And then women say, well, we're off the hook. But then he would say, yes, but you have to fulfill certain kosher laws and follow certain observations of holidays. And Paul's kind of like getting to the point of saying, well, what about love one another? I mean, what's your circumcision mean? If you're circumcised and the Gentile is a schmuck who's not circumcised, aren't you a schmuck if you're circumcised but you don't love? See, that's the point. That's where he's getting. Now, what other teacher tonight in the Christian world is teaching this message called the teacher and the schmuck? What other Christian teacher that you know of? See, I'm special. I'm using the word schmuck in my sermon tonight. What other teachers doing that in the Easter season? And it is the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Easter this Sunday. I'm special. <laughs> I'm just saying that to show you how very unspecial I am. Now, common, I'm a pagan. Guess what I am? A graced out pagan. So, doesn't mean I'm going to join the motorcycle group. In fact... This teacher may be the ringleader of some of those men that came down from Jerusalem and said, unless a man is circumcised after the law of Moses in a ritual sense, he cannot be saved. Maybe he's the ringleader of all of them. He may, in fact, be in the mold of the teacher of righteousness of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Read, if you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, read all the references to this person called Teacher, capital T, the teacher of righteousness. He may be in the mold of the teacher of righteousness of Qumran fame or the Dead Sea Scrolls fame, who's spoken of so often in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But he may also be, in fact, Satan's own representative and messenger who is largely responsible for the discord among the saints in Rome. So when Paul says Satan will be shattered under your feet shortly to the Roman Christians, he's saying the effect of this messenger of a nomistic gospel, which is discord among you, will be totally defeated soon. That's what he's saying in Romans 16, 20. And there are preachers and theologians who tell me when I read their commentaries that Romans 16, 17 to 20 isn't part of Romans. What? And that, and that colors their interpretation of Romans, and that's important. And then they say Romans 16, 25 to 27 is really anti-Semitic, and I'm saying, where did you get that? And if that's interpretive of all of Romans, then their interpretation is slanted by thinking that that's not part of Paul's doctrine. But it is, in my view. So... This teacher that Paul is standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with may be Satan's own representative and messenger who is largely responsible for the discord among the saints in Rome. So circumcision was certainly a hot-button issue in this debate, and Paul audaciously confronts it here. It's like an issue that would be very controversial in our own times that a preacher would want to avoid talking about. 
but he confronts it. So in closing, as we move to the close here, we're going to close through, go through verse 26. Listen carefully to this. Having already set, and I'll use Campbell's term unashamedly, the teacher here, the teacher with a capital T. Having already set this teacher back on his heels with the scriptural denunciation of him in Isaiah 52, 5, a scriptural denunciation of him. That's like saying the Lord rebuke you, which the angel said to Satan. He didn't say I rebuke you. He said the Lord rebuke you. The scripture rebuke you. After setting him back on his heels in this mixed martial arts combat, he then goes immediately to the issue of ritual circumcision, which is a big issue to them. To paraphrase, he says, and here's my paraphrase of what Paul's saying here, and I think it's merited in the scripture or evidenced here in the scripture. He's saying, well, circumcision would certainly be a profitable thing. It would be if... It were part of a regimen of total obedience to all of the law. However, it seems that if any part of the law were violated, then circumcision would effectively be undone. And you would be a man with a foreskin again. Now, there's, that's deliberately humorous. Paul's saying that as a way for the audience to kind of like go... <laughs> You know, if not laugh outrightly, that's what he's after. There's Paul's using rhetoric here, but he's using it in a humorous way. Believe it or not, the apostle has a sense of humor. Imagine it if you can. So you can see where this is going. The apostle of grace will later assert that the rectitude or the righteous behavior that's required by a total obedience to the law cannot be achieved at all by human effort in any way, by human means of any kind. However noble, however well-intentioned, it can only be brought about by the action of the Spirit of Christ because all the law hangs on this, that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength, and that love is the gift of God to us and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your Jewish Christian friend, Gentile Christian as yourself. Love your Gentile Christian neighbor, Jewish Christian as yourself. Your circumcision doesn't help you if you hate the guy, does it really? Don't you just become a schmuck? (laughs) I love this. Now, this is, my, this is how I get my entertainment. So, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in the hearts of the believers so that the, what the law requires is fulfilled in the believer who walks not in his own steam but in the Spirit, Romans 8, 4. Paul's saying, my gospel does produce a sanctification, a transformation. It doesn't just liberate them to do whatever they want. It transforms them to do what God commands, but not by any human means whatsoever. Romans 5, 5, 8, 4, 13, 8 to 10. Paul says, if there's any commandment, like you are to preach, do not commit adultery. You want, to co- you want to preach, do not steal, even though you do both to the preacher. If there's any other commandment of the law, it is fulfilled in this that you love your neighbor as yourself. So you owe no person anything but to love one another because loving one another, you don't steal from that person. You don't kill them. If you love somebody, here's the thing for all of America today in its vicious, violent hatred of one another. If you love one another, you do not kill one another. You do not murder one another. You do not rip each other off. You do not commit adultery against your brother's wife. You do not do these things because it's all an anakafalaya'o. Summed up in this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You say, what about the love of God? That's understood. 
We'll get to that. So 226. And if that is so, that is, isn't your circumcision uncircumcision? Paul says, and if that's so, then on the other hand, if the schmuck, acrobustia, that's a pejorative, a pejorative term. It's a term, it's a derogatory term. It's a bad word to say about somebody else. And so he says, if that's so, then on the other hand, if the foreskin, and that's what it's saying, this guy's reduced to a body part. He's a foreskin. If the foreskin keeps the requirement of the law, and he's getting the hint, loving one another, then will not his foreskin be considered as circumcision or removed. Hey, teacher, he's saying, leave those kids alone. That's Pink Floyd. Hey, teacher, what are you going to do with the circumcised person that he talked about earlier who violates the law? And on the other hand, what are you going to do with the schmuck who fulfills it? You're in an awkward position. You, got, you don't have a leg to stand on. You're going to hit the mat any second, teacher. Leave those kids alone. So it's notable that this word for uncircumcision, acrobustia itself is a derogatory term used by some Jews for Gentiles and still used by some Jewish Christians for their Gentile brothers in the church. This is a pejorative, P-E-J-O-R-A-T-I-V-E, term, derogatory, kept alive by such teachers who insist on circumcision for salvation. That whole thing is kept alive. That prejudice is kept alive. That derogatory term and terminology is kept alive. That belittling, pervasive hostility is kept alive Not by Paul's gospel, by which everybody receives rectifying life, but by this teacher's gospel who insists on Torah observation. Now, it's a term of disapproval heaped on the Gentile believers, but by some, but not all, but by some judgmental brothers. A nomistic gospel encourages criticism and judgmentalism, while a false sense of liberty, on the other hand, that Paul hits as we go to the other flank soon, a false sense of liberty, which is a liberty that ignores the responsibility of love, it maintains its own liberty at all costs at the expense of love, the sense of false sense of liberty on the other side encourages a belittling or a despising of others or worse, an emboldening of others to go past their conscience when to them it would be sin. So the gospel of God about his son advocates and produces a faith that works by love. Circumcision and uncircumcision, Paul says, Doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean a thing. What means something is a faithfulness that works by love. Didn't he say it in Galatians 5.16? Circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing. But what's really something is a faithfulness that works by love. And guess what that faithfulness is? Participation in the fidelity of Jesus Christ and love produced by the spirit of Christ in our very mortal members. And that in turn produces peacemakers, not division makers. Peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be reputed to be the children of God. They will be the ambassadors of the ministry of reconciliation. So what is yet to come, or what is yet to become apparent in Romans 2 and onward, is the nature of, of, listen to this last statement because this goes back to where it all started and to where the great peel-off came from believers who could not leave their dispensationalism or their petty moralism or their 
my individual Christianity, nobody else. They couldn't believe it. So they left this gospel. This is the point. What is yet to become apparent in Romans 2 and onward is the nature of real circumcision and the identity of real Israel, that which Paul, at the very peak of his audacity in Galatians, called the Israel of God. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity tonight. We're grateful that the point can be made. All of these things lead to a gratitude to you for your son. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And it leads to a humility that is free from the illusion of a rectitude gained by human effort. Thank you, Father. 